0: really good that we sing together. When we sing together, the promise is that through corporate worship, our hearts are built with faith and strength to continue to follow God. So that's the spiritual reality behind corporate singing. We talked about that last week. I pray that God would uh, give us grace through ordinary things such as this, and through ordinary things such as opening up a book to find Him through words on a page. uh, We are depending on God to bring to life this message through the Holy Spirit, so that um, this would be no ordinary thing, but actually an extraordinary thing. And so uh, I'll I'll invite you to join me with faith to approach God, to ask him to do something extraordinary for us through the preaching of his word. God, would you do something extraordinary by showing your glory as you give grace away to rebels? That's who you are. That's why you are so good, because there's no one like you in heaven, in earth, or under it. You, and all your glory, have positioned Christ to extend your glory and grace to wretched men, women, and children, so that after finding you, we could be swept up off of our feet in your love, and built up by the gospel to live lives of holiness and obedience. So do a gospel work this morning, I pray, Lord. And we worship you because we're your people, and we worship you because you promised that when we open up the book and look to you by faith that you will feed us your word, and your word will be our bread. And so feed us your word this morning, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um... One of the ways that I know that I'm getting older now and becoming a true family man is uh, apparent <laughs> through uh, how excited I get when my wife uh, tells the family that we have to take a trip to Costco. Um, so, uh, so basically, confession, I really like the men's section at Costco. They have hip clothing. Um, anyway, like you can find Oakley and Hurley and cool stuff like that. At least that's cool for dads. So Costco's legit. Anyways, when we get to Costco, here's our routine. Lizzie takes Noelle, our youngest, with the cart, and she goes off food shopping, and I take my two boys, and we go off and strategically hit every single sample station of food. Uh, that's really cool. After we fill up on those little snacks, we go and look at the tools and the gadgets and the clothes, and uh, if there's any time left over, then we make our, our, uh, our way to the front section and wait for Lizzie, and we fill up on $1.50 hot dogs with soda, It's a great meal if you're looking for a budget uh, item. Costco's kind of crazy. The crowds are kind of crazy. The lines are also kind of crazy, but it's also a great time. And really, aside from all this crazy, beautiful mayhem that we experience there as a a family, the thing that Lizzie and I really enjoy about Costco is how we get to buy in bulk. Uh, We know that, that when we go to Costco and bring back food, we're not going to need food for a while. And so we have this tradition, uh, whenever we go on that Saturday morning, we come home and have this really great, lavish lunch together. And the cool thing about it is that after we eat our lunch, we know that after it's over, there's plenty more where that came from. Our, 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 our kitchen uh, 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 refrigerator gets packed. Uh, the overflow goes into the basement, the, the basement refrigerator, and then our... Um, our meat freezer, our deep freezer in our garage also gets full of meat. But you know me, I can't help but think about the gospel anywhere I go, and here's what I come up with. The uh, the gospel and Costco are very different than one another. (laughs) Let Let me explain to you what I'm talking about before you think I'm crazy. You might be saying, James, what the heck are you talking about? You're out of your mind. I know it's for the gospel, though it's good. What I mean by this that the gospel in Costco are very different than one another is, is found in the fact that when we in, interrogate Jesus' teaching on how he taught his disciples to pray, do you remember how he instructed them to pray to God? He said, When you pray, pray, to your Father in heaven and say, Give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread, which wasn't just a reference to food, but actually to a bigger reference to the general idea of provision. In other words, Christians are to live their lives um, totally dependent on God. What am I not saying? I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't shop at Costco. That would be a really bad day for me. I'm not saying that it's faithless to shop at Costco. I am saying that it is an absolute blessing where we live in our time, place, and culture to have excess, abundance, a savings, and a retirement plan. But I'm also saying that in all of this culture of excess and comfort, there is a real temptation to forget the one who provides for it all. That nothing that we have comes from the merit of our own hands. But that it all comes from the Lord. And so... Uh, We actually don't have control or power to sustain ourselves, though we work and get paychecks. It is actually God who's the one who's doing that for us. Everything that we receive from God for our continued life existence is from the Lord. All of this is for the purpose of knowing and depending on him and falling in love with his gracious character to care for us. But the thing that I really want to show us this morning as we consider the topic of God's provision is the spiritual provision that he provides for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if we get and begin to dive deep into understanding God's love and care through his provision um, of, of sending his one and only son, as we journey on through this life which considers, uh, which consists of highs and lows, of tragedies, uh, tragedies and triumphs, excess and need if we get God's love and care and promises through the Lord and Savior, then we will have the key that unlocks the secret to knowing true rest and peace in a world that strives and ceases to, and unceasingly to have it. When God becomes our greatest treasure and prize, and we behold him in the gospel, then our hearts will find rest to have all we need, and we can look at our life and situation, regardless of what we're in, or what may come, and say, God is enough. And he has provided, thus since he has provided, I know he will provide. Nothing will shake me or move me when and if and because I have God right now. If you have a Bible or cell phone, this is our light like to show us this morning. If, um, that'd be great if you turn to Exodus chapter sixteen. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. I've titled the sermon. If you're following along, it's good to depend on God. And um, from this chapter, I like to show us three things: testing to know God, obedience to worship Him, and number three, grace. To, sa- to save and sustain. <laughs> Excuse me, not feeling good this morning. Right now, we're going to move to point number one, and I'm going like to show you testing to know God. Well, um, one of the things that we saw last week in our study of chapter 15 was how um, Moses, who's the author of this book, intentionally took time out of the story to pause the narrative in order to worship God for the the great miracle that he did through uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. If you remember, it was he, along with his brother Aaron and sister Miriam, along with the rest of the congregation of Israel, because of God's mighty work in providing for them salvation, they all stopped just for one chapter to sing. This week in chapter 16, after the pause, the story is resuming for us. At the end of chapter 15, what had happened was that Israel moved on from the Red Sea, journeyed to this place um, called uh, Myra to camp for a bit, which was their first campsite. And there in their first campsite, Israel ran into a dilemma. That dilemma was that um, after three days of traveling, they ran out of water. And so God, if you look there at the end of chapter 15, is very gracious to provide for his people water through Moses. And this provision is actually what sets us up to um, see the great provision that is found here in chapter 16. Moses, in chapter 16, begins writing in verse 1 and says this. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin." which is between Elam and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, if only we would have died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. The point I want to make to you from this introduction of the story is actually twofold. Number one, I'd like to show you how this is a test. And number two, I'd like to show you that the people of God do not pass it. Number one, in in verse four, we see clearly that this is a a, a test from God. He says that I may test them. And number two, we see how his people in this chapter indeed don't pass the test of faith. And this is seen through the one word which is repeated eight separate times in this chapter through that one word, grumble. Grumble. They grumble. And uh, their grumbling is not the only indication of their failure of faith, but it's the main thing. And so uh, the situation is God's people are out in the wilderness. They have no food. He is testing them to see what they're going to do. And they grumble. Some might say, James, this sounds pretty accurate concerning the God of the Bible. Typical God of the Bible, James brings his people into nonsensical situations only to have them suffer? Why would he do this? He didn't have to do this. If God is really in control, explain to me why this. So let me just stop and say how thankful I am if, if you and your heart are tempted to ask questions like this. So thankful to have people who have Courage to announce doubt and skepticisms here at church. If we could announce uh, doubts and skepticisms here at church, where else could we announce them? And also, I just want to let you know that Christians and non-Christians, both hearts, are tempted to ask questions like this. Doubters and skeptics are welcome here in this church. If if this is you, uh, we're so thankful. The reason why... God tests Israel in this story is actually found in one simple answer, and that answer is this. So that they can learn about his love and character. In other words, through this test, God's intention is to teach his people about himself. What does God want to show them about himself? The answer, that he is full of steadfast love and mercy towards people who grumble against him. I don't know if you heard what I just said. I just said that God's steadfast love is shown towards his people who grumble and rebel against him. It's a scandalous gospel. The story goes on to prove it in verses 6 through 12. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the, Lord, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. What did we just read? We just read that Israel has crappy, bad attitudes against God and their life situation, and indeed, through the word against, that their complaint stood in direct opposition to him and his plan for them. And what did it provoke God to do and be like and act like in this text? Did it provoke him to anger or deal with his people harshly? No, actually, the text says that it provoked him to reveal his glory. And where is this glory found here in this text? In his provision of food towards his grumbling people. In other words... The glory revealed here in this text is found in the grace God gives to people who do not want him or his plan and who doubt him and who prefer not to be his and rather dead. And you think I'm overstating that or putting it too heavenly. I just want to read to you verse 2 again. This is what they said. Oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord In the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you, speaking to Moses but actually against God, have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I don 't know if your heart's being drawn to this to see the parallel towards us we 're going to get there in a second, but here's a deeper picture. For the past ten chapters, God has over and over again, worked miracles, signs, and wonders on his people's behalf to save them, to protect them, to deliver them, to rescue them, to care for them, to preserve them, to give them grace, to deal with them mercifully. And up until this point of the story, God has kept every single one of his promises that he has made for his people. And I started off by reminding you of what they did in chapter 15, Do you remember what they said just one chapter ago? They said, praise God. He is so great. He's so good. He's merciful. We belong to him. He belongs to us. We love our salvation. Our future's sure and certain. There is no other than God. A month and a half later, uh, the people in light of their hard situation have forgotten the Lord and rebelled against him. Their life situation has stripped them from having faith and believing that God is good. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you right now that Israel still had much to learn about God. Thus, God's test with purpose of teaching them about himself is appropriate. This is why God tests His people so to produce in them knowledge of Himself, not just head knowledge that stays here, but then after ingraining them into their head of His grace, character, love, mercy and commitment, then to penetrate their hearts so there will be an outflowing and work in their hands. God wants to teach His people that He is steadfast in love. There's nothing wrong with the question that they asked in chapter 15, when they had no water, what are we to drink? But what I want you to see in this text is that they're not even asking questions right now. All they're doing is is holding in their hearts resentment towards God because of their situation. You see, their problem is real. But rather than going to God with it, they choose to grumble and say, We hate our life. It sucks. We'd rather be dead. If Israel just would have said to God, God, the situation hurts. God, the situation seems big, but you are God. We've seen you work miracles over and over. Nothing's too hard for you. Would you please save us from our hunger? Do you want to know what he would have did? He would have did exactly what he did with Moses when Moses prayed to him in in chapter 15 when they had no water and he would have gave them food. We want to know the good news? Even though they don't pray like this or believe this, guess what God does? He gives them food. God gives food to people who don't want him. God is gracious to his people when they struggle and sin and have whole cold hearts against him. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is not grace, I, I don't know what is. And before I talk about grace, let me just talk about this idea of grumbling here because you, you know as well as I do that this is exactly what our life dilemmas that seem to have no answer to produce towards um, believing that God is not good and hating our life situation. And I know that some of you might say, but James, I never believe that God is bad. I never believe that he's not good. Really? Have you always in all situations rejoiced? Have you always, in every situation and trial, even in suffering, found hope in the gospel? Have you never copped an attitude with God or been pessimistic towards what may come of the situation next? Have you never wavered in faith, not even for one bit, or believed the best? The answer for us all, so I can level the playing field here, is that we all have. We're all works in progress. All of our faith needs to be strengthened by grace. All of us at certain times and moments in our life story as we've been uh, uh, encountered with the hardship have been um, prone to complaining. And you want to know what happens when we travel down this road and follow Satan's lead towards pessimism, hopelessness, and despair? Well, after we follow him and he tricks us and deceives us into thinking that God is not good, he then gets us there and traps us and says, Aha, I got you. Look. Look what you're not believing God is good um, has produced for you rebellion, cold heart towards God, distance from God through word and prayer, a shying away from Him. I got this by myself. And now, you Christian, look at you. You're a hypocrite. You're not a good Christian. Piece of crap. This is how Satan lures us in to believing that God is not good. And this is what he wants to do, produce in us condemnation. He wants us to believe and be tricked that God rewards those who are good to him. That, 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 That God's grace is only given toward those who are good. Hey, it's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. God doesn't give good things to good people. He gives the best thing to the worst of people his son, Jesus Christ, to the the, the least of these, to, to wretched rebels. God delights in showing mercy to rebels. This is where the glory of the gospel is actually found. Let me remind you that God here in this text is looking at his people who do not want him after he's even saved them and delivered them from slavery. And he says, I'm I'm committed to these people. They're mine. I chose them. I will be good to them, even if they're not good to me, and this is where my glory is shown. God delights in showing mercy to people who grumble so you can personally rebuke the evil one who condemns you because of your grumbling, who says that God doesn't love you. You can show him this text and then lead him to the cross. Is this a ticket to keep on grumbling? Absolutely not. This is a ticket to know the free grace and invitation that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would God show us this type of grace and mercy? The answer, to change, move, and transform us by his grace so that we can be conformed into the image of his son through the grace that he has given to us through his life, death, and resurrection. Grace transforms lives. One man named Dane Ortland, he wrote a book, Gentle and Lowly. He was actually expounding upon one Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson. And in the book, he said this. If you're a part of Christ's body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. The sins of those who belong to God Open the floodgates of his heart and compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins God's love. It is our unloveliness. God is committed to teaching us about himself through the grace that he is committed to giving us through his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father is pleased to exalt his son. Why and for what purpose? Why? Because he has merited for us on our behalf salvation on the cross and reconciled us as sinful people to himself where we become children of God. This is how Christ is exalted, by saving and sending grace to sinners. Why would God the Father pull out his love if that is true? It can't be true. My brothers and sisters, what I want you to know about the gospel is that God is committed to you even in the worst of your sin so that you, by grace and mercy, can be wooed back to to him forever. I'm wondering for you if there's any life circumstance or situation that has caused you to grumble or to believe that God isn't good. How is Satan using your situation to keep you from believing this or experiencing God's love? I just want to remind you the gospel. God has brought you this hard situation so to prove himself. And what he will prove about himself is is grace and mercy because what Christ has done for you on your behalf. And so stop and let us consider the wonderful and marvelous cross of Jesus Christ. God is ordering our life events in such a way that uh, he's not going to stop pursuing us until we completely get his love. That's the gospel grace and commitment that we get as we live before him. Amen? Well, that was point number one, testing to know God. I'd like to move now to show you point number two, which is um, obedience to worship Him. The the text goes on. Uh, After God spoke to Israel and said that He was going to provide for His people, even in their grumbling, the story says in verses 13 through 21 this, In the evening, quail came upon and covered the camp. In the morning, dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is the equivalent measure of 3.5 pounds. Fun fact. According to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could. And Moses said to them, here's the instruction. Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it brewed worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Here's the situation. Israel was just in a predicament where they had no food. Now food has been sent to them. And what are they tempted to do in the face of this daily provision? The answer to treat this manna as though they were at Costco and gather as much of it as they can, Amen. to ensure that they had enough food for the next day. What has God been trying to do all throughout this Exodus story, to show them that He is their provider, even here, specifically, this is the overarching message: The Lord is the provider. The whole narrative is meant to set Israel up to knowing this that He alone is the one who saves and keeps them. He wants His people to stop fretting and thinking like the rest of the world and surrounding nations, thinking that they can save themselves, that their lives and future and hope is up to themselves. He's like saying, Guys, get this. I am the provider. This is why Moses in verse 19 says to them, after you get your daily food, leave no leftovers to morning, so you can practice this discipline of depending on me. This would have been hard for a, a cultural context like Israel. Why? Because there was an agricultural culture. Farmers know that if they harvest only enough food for one day at a time, that eventually things are going to run out because there's no animal or crop that produces uh, food or sustenance every day. And so what God is doing through this commandment is inviting them to push back on their natural inclination to gather and provide for themselves. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And so they're not struggling with clinical but situational anxiety. What is anxiety? What is anxiety? Anxiety is a mixture of fear and impatience. Israel was fearful of what may or may not come. And so with impatience, they scramble and turn to themselves in order to keep their lives. This is why Moses is is really angry in verse 20. Because instead of gathering in such a way that trusted God, like the commandment said, they gathered for two days. He's like, guys, come on, man. Have you got this by now? But I also am going to say that Moses hasn't always been this great man of faith. Do you remember the story? I mean, we read it together, even starting in chapter 3. Moses, at one time in his life story, had little to no faith. Remember God came to him in chapter 3 and said, Moses, I'm going to choose you, buddy, to go to Pharaoh. And Moses said, God, you got the wrong guy. Well, uh, Moses said, uh, who am I to do that? God said, don't worry, Moses, I'm going to go with you. Moses said, but, but God, I don't know how to speak. The people won't listen to me. God said, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to send your brother to speak on your behalf. I'll provide for your every need. I'm going to do miracles for you. And so in the context of the command to obey God by faith, Moses, before any of these great miracles happened, actually couldn't do it. God was giving him great promises for miracles that he was the one who was going to go before him, but he couldn't get there. It was only through God's faithfulness that Moses learned of his grace and commitment. But now, by by God's grace, he's come to the point after seeing them all that he finally gets it. Israel, come on. God has done enough, He has proved Himself enough. He will be faithful. But here's the awesome thing about Moses' faith. He's not like uber spiritual and detached from reality, right? This isn't a faith claim that has no real, real boots on the ground. In chapter 15, he prays for the need. He doesn't ignore the need. He prays for water, This isn't a type of faith that ignores the reality and hardship that comes with suffering. This is the type of faith that says in it I still will stand firmly on the gospel knowing that even as I suffer and things are hard and there seemingly looks like there is no resolve, I will trust and obey. So in 15 he prays to God as an exemplary of trust and in 16, he advocates for obedience through telling Israel that they should obey the command only together at one day at a time. What I want to tell you about obedience, uh, my brothers and sisters, is that it is actually the most uh, practical way of worship. Obedience is the fruit of true faith and trust in God. It's an act of worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Live holy unto God and obey him. This is worship. And here's the the dilemma with obedience as we think about our own lives. Oftentimes we think of it too narrowly as if it only has to do with ourselves, but actually, obedience is much bigger than ourselves, Obedience actually affects three other categories. I was online this week reading an article written by an old seminary professor of mine named Dan Doriani, and Dan said that our obedience actually goes on to affect three other categories. It goes on to affect God, it goes on to affect the church, and it goes on to affect the world. How so? Well, if obedience is an act of worship, then of course it is about God. And disobedience would affect God in in uh, keeping him from getting, getting the praise which is due from the grace that we have received in our lives? Do we see God as infinitely treasurable? Do we see him of infinite worth? Are the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning actually true? Well, if they are, then our lives would be packed with obedience Obedience is an act of worship towards God. How about the church? Well, I told you last week that the church is all about living in a community. Um, so, uh, so if our community is a spiritual family, and there in our spiritual family we have some people who are living in disobedience, what actually ends up happening is that the church inevitably suffers. And so if we're not reading our Bibles, we're not praying, we're dabbling in sin, tolerating it, practicing it, if we're really not close to God, lacking intimacy, our disobedience is actually causing the church to suffer because the church has been called by the gospel of grace to be built up on the gospel so the saints in it could be be edified to the glory of Christ. Christ. And then the world. Well, we're called to be ambassadors to the world. Well, if we're called to be ambassadors to the world, how can darkness drive out darkness? Only light can do that. How can a person whose life is fruitless before God go out in the name of Jesus, proclaim his name, and expect for there to be fruit? Non-believers could sniff that from a mile away. You don't love God. There's no joy in you, and you're telling me to believe? Come on! But the true believer loves to obey because of the love of Christ that has been shown to them. They delight in the mercy that has been shown, and they delight in living in faithful obedience before the Lord. So the Lord is praised, his church is built, and non-Christians get to experience the the life-changing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility to obey, and I'm not calling you to obedience um, through, the, through, through the lens of religion. What's, what's the difference? Well, religion, religious obedience, is obedience that obeys without actually loving God and looks at the religious rules as a, as a list of things to get due so after they do them, God can love and accept them. Um, if, if that's you, you can, you can throw that away. You're, you're, you're better off not even doing that at all. Uh, I'm talking about heartfelt worship and obedience. I'm talking about, God, I love you. And the good news for you and for me is that obedience doesn't always come with the warm and fuzzies. Like if, you, if, if you're like me, you'll know for over a long period of time that as you follow Jesus and take up your cross, that it's actually kind of hard. And so you don't have to ignore the situation that brings you pain or suffering, But you, by faith, can know that the gospel is enough, that God's word is true, that God himself is true, so that you um, can forsake your feelings of emotions that would cause you to stray, and even in that moment of temptation, say, no, the gospel is enough. I will trust and obey. Despite what I feel, I will obey because God is true. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream. It doesn't, he doesn't fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. First John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. And so from his grace, there is an appropriate response of obedience And it is, for the Christian, a delight. Amen. I'd like to finish in the last point, which is the grace that he gives us to save and sustain us. As we close our chapter, I want to take you into the New Testament. It's not like me, but we're going to use another passage. John chapter 6. And uh, here's why. It's because Jesus is actually the fulfillment of this text in every way. I'm going to read to you Jesus' word so maybe the Holy Spirit can make this click for you and show you that there is good news for everyone. John chapter 6, Jesus is walking. Crowds are following him. The crowds call out to him, and this is what they say to him. Rabbi, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and he will raise him up on that last day. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that come down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for you for the life of the world is my flesh. Um, in the story, we see God providing for physical needs. That's amazing. In the story, we see God giving to his people grace. That's amazing. But in and through Jesus Christ, what do we see God doing? Giving us his whole self. Leaving heaven and becoming the second Adam and living a life that you and I should have lived on our behalf, sinlessly, and on the cross, taking upon himself the full weight of the curse of death, of sin and death. So that those who would by faith look to him would, would stop striving and working to satisfy their souls and ensure their future. They would stop believing the lie that their work could save them. Jesus said in this passage in John chapter 6, the great human dilemma. And that is in Exodus chapter 16 that the people of God in the wilderness ate the manna. And what happened? They died. But what does Jesus say for those who believe in him? which is actually from his words, eating, that whoever believes in Christ, though he die, he may live forever. Jesus Christ is the grace and mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the way that we can rest assured that God will assure our future. Jesus Christ is the way that every time after we grumble and or sin, that we can rest assured that God will not grow impatient with us. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And if you eat, you'll never have to worry about dying again. You'll never have to worry what is your status or position before God. We will not, like Israel, have to turn to ourselves to save ourselves or our future, but we will, through faithfulness, turn to the only one who indeed can save. Would you like to be saved? Well, then the invitation is to Tell God how sorry you are for your sins and how you grumbled and strayed and say, I can't save, but only you can save. And so I'm placing faith in the bread that you have sent from heaven, Jesus Christ, your son, and in him I will boast alone. This is the free grace that is offered through this gospel. I'd like to finish our time by reading to you Isaiah chapter 55. Come, come, this is an invitation to you, okay? I pray that you hear the Lord speaking. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He or she who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, that he might have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will impundently pardon our sin." My brothers and sisters, manna has been sent from heaven. Exodus chapter 16 has been fulfilled through the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray, if there's anyone who is being pursued by you this morning, that you would open up their mouths by faith and let them take a bite into this bread. Would you let someone's life who's never had their soul satisfied in you be satisfied in your love and mercy for them? And for your flock, O Lord, I plea that you would show grace and mercy and you would remind them that you delight in showing grace and mercy to your people regardless of their sin, that you delight in showing grace and mercy so you could teach us about your character infinity times infinity until we inherit glory for the glory of your name. We love you and we're so thankful for this gospel. Sometimes it's hard to believe because it's so good, but it indeed is true, and I pray that it would transform our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Please stand.